The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Walk me through your days towards the end of deciding to leave Scientology. I packed my truck and over like a three week period, I just put stuff in my truck that I wanted to take with me. I said that I was going to go across the street and I basically took a left turn and I left. So I didn't really care what my future held. I just had to go. It's Violet Benson, your favorite meme queen in the big sit you didn't ask for, but need a welcome to almost adulting. Almost Ready? Hey cuties and welcome to a brand new Thursday episode. Oh my God, we are finishing this month with such a bang. I have been saving this special episode for the end of the month because it is so fascinating that it needed two parts. Today, you get to find out about Scientology. And this episode is so crazy because I got to interview a family member of the man, the legend that was behind creating Scientology. This is such a big deal that we had to protect the identity of this person from their voice to what they look like. And I'm so thankful they allowed us to have this interview and I'm so thankful for everything they got to say. Today's episode and next week's episode because it's two parts because there's so much information. It is not about me telling you whether you should love Scientology or you should hate Scientology. It is me giving you information and having someone share their experience. Their experience is going to be a very individual experience. It's going to be very different from other people that have experienced Scientology since they are in the family area. So their experience is going to be something that most people, whether or not they were in Scientology, will never be able to experience. That is why the story is so interesting and so fascinating. I am urging you to form your own opinions on how you feel about this. I'm not here to tell you how you should feel. It's just me sharing information with you and sharing interesting experience from someone's perspective that we will never be able to relate to. I hope you enjoy. Today is part one. And you know what? I just realized I never even introduced myself. I was so excited about today's episode. I forgot to say, hey guys, I'm Violet Benson and welcome to Almost adulting into the last month of October with the best episode of the month that I've been saving. Next week will be part two and that's how we will open up November, which is controversy month or whatever I decide it's going to be. I'm still figuring it out. <laughs> I hope you enjoy it. Let me know if you have any questions. It's going to blow your mind. Enjoy. I'm Bio Benson. Welcome to another episode of Almost Adulting. Obviously, I kind of introduced my guest prior to the beginning of this interview, but uh, today my special guest is so special to the point that we will not be using her identity and also not showing a video of her because of how deeply rooted she, her and her family were in Scientology. So, welcome. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, what made you decide to tell your story today? Honestly, your platform is very geared towards healing and mental health awareness, and uh, there's intelligent conversations on the platform, and you've been an inspiration for me for a very long time. Thank you so much. I've never heard you say that before, so obviously I'm very flattered. And I'm making a joke since we've had a lot of previous conversations uh, prior to this, so she can feel comfortable with me, and we've obviously bonded since. So... Um, we're just making little jokes, sure. but today's episode is going to be really exciting. So can you tell me what is one of the reasons that you decided to stay anonymous today? Honestly, privacy is very important to my mental health. Um, people don't normally take my or anyone else's mental health into account. And you did and gave me uh, an ability to be anonymous and say things that I've been wanting to say, but also protect my own privacy and mental health, to be honest. And um, that's very important to me because of how deeply rooted both sides of my family are. And it also gives me a chance to be non-biased and to speak honestly and from the heart and not feel judged. Right. Um, in your own words, 
Can you describe what Scientology is? I believe that it's a self-help philosophy that basically examines um, past trauma, like it talks about past lives, it talks about um, things that you're doing and taking a look at your own actions so that you can improve yourself to be a better person. Um, there's like a lot of layers to that and there's obviously negative aspects to how that plays out in real life. But um, I think the original intent of it was like a self-help therapy. And you were born into Scientology. Yes, I was born into it. Both sides of my family were deeply involved. And I was actually born into one of like the inner sanctum clergy tiers, you know, like super deep. Right. And we'll cover those tiers um, in a bit, but super deep in, in a sense that it, there was extra protection. Yeah, we were at the upper levels, the upper management levels, so to speak. Like, you know, there's two different tiers and we'll explain it later, but we were in like the upper management. So it was like super secretive, super deep, almost like military level, you know, for our own context. How long were you part of Scientology? Um, for 34 years. And are you currently exiled? Yes, excommunicated. Excommunicated. What do you think some huge misconceptions are when it comes to Scientology? People judge it as being weirder than other belief systems when, like, have has anyone, like, read the Bible or, like, any of these other things? Like, like honestly, like, all belief systems are a little bit wacky. So people throw stones at things they don't understand. And I think Scientology is a lot newer and was you know, invented in a more modern time. It hasn't had time to kind of like settle in and be normalized like the other things that have been normalized. Yeah, that makes sense. In the beginning of the interview, you said how you're second generation Scientology. Can you walk me through the day of as a kid living like that? What does that mean? Can you kind of describe it to me? There are several different, um, you know, compounds or bases around the world. And I was at one of the upper level ones and or the upper level one. And um, there were other kids there later, um, but uh, you aren't considered like a child. So you're considered kind of an adult, um, you know, so I was almost adult <laughs> when I was very young. Um, you're considered kind of like an adult when you're younger and you're expected to carry on duties, like, you know, not like everybody else, because obviously you're a child, but you're expected to be responsible and grown up and um, contributing to the organization at an early age. So, you know, I would be with all the other adults um, going to all of the gatherings and the meetings and eating with them. And uh, I was still going to school at the time. So we kind of had like a little bit of a private school at that compound. But otherwise, like, you know, you were you were expected to contribute to the renovations we were doing or the things we were doing. You know, there's many different uh, people who have spoken out and explained that kind of lifestyle. Um, but you kind of grew up really fast. What does that mean, compound? For someone like me who doesn't understand that. It was a lot of buildings on, you know, one property, a huge property, kind of like, um, like a military base. You know, that's why I say compound, because that's the closest thing to to give as an analogy yeah how many people lived in the compound you lived in it got up to about a thousand it ranged between like 350 and a thousand whoa that's a lot it's like a whole village it is a whole village it was like a small town situation like everybody knew everything about everyone it was crazy that's so interesting so growing up there for, as a child that's kind of all you knew that was your your world right yes that was my world and I, you know, of course, I'm a little bit of a rebel. So like every chance I got, I like, you know, subscribed to magazines and like, you know, went outside the compound and talked to as many people as I could, you know, to collect, you know, pop culture and culture outside of the compound. But yes, that was all I knew. You were allowed to leave the compound? Yeah, you generally like there was actually the compound got more and more secretive as time went on. It's a whole story. But um, in the beginning, it was more come and go and like people, you know, could leave, you know, like with authorization, you can leave kind of like at a military base. Like if you live on the compound, you, you show your ID, you go through the guard gate, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So the person that created Scientology, what do you think made them want to create Scientology? The person who created Scientology is L. Ron Hubbard. I think he created Scientology uh, because... I think he really did want to heal. I think he really was like 
in the business of doing therapy. And he really was a product of his generation at the time. It was after World War II in America. You know, there was a lot of things that had just happened. The healing was needed. Um, therapy was a new thing back then. We're talking the 30s and 40s right now. Um, therapy was a new thing. Um, psychiatry was a little brutal at that time. Like mental health was just like finding its place. Um, that whole concept was kind of new to the world as well, like Western concepts like that. Um, you know, Eastern healing had already been kind of like going for centuries. But so then he published um, Dianetics, you know, originally for to be like a self-help, you know, way to kind of like people to team up and help each other with their trauma or whatever their mental things were. And so I think originally that was his intention, you know, and obviously, yeah, of course, I'm sure he said he was going to make money and invent a religion. Like, who doesn't want to make money in America? Right. But originally, he probably he wasn't planning on making an actual religion. Originally, it, was, it started as maybe a community or a group for mental health. He started out as a writer, you know, he was a science fiction writer. And so then he wrote this book, he was a prolific writer and that's the one thing everybody agrees on he's a like he has so many books and he was actually a really good writer like you know but he gets bashed obviously because of Scientology but um and then later on as the years went on you know we're talking 60s and 70s now like after he's you know collected an organization and a group of yes men around him and he starts like getting high on his own supply and believing he's a god and then you know that's when things start going off the rails of course and then you know the ego kicks in in our preliminary interviews we've had this discussion um because it is so much easier from the outside to judge people who we don't understand and to judge people of power but we were talking about this how i read somewhere how humans are not meant to be worshipped only god is so it's very normal so from celebrities when it gets to their head to even someone like this person, it's very normal that at first, even if they do want to be do, they want to do good, they can't handle all the power and all the attention, all that. And it's, it's not normal. You don't know what to do with it. And it's very, cause it's who's ruining the world in general, humans. So humans will always ruin everything. That just, it's our nature. That's why there's all the sins and all that. So it's the envy, the greed. It's so, I think it's much easier to judge from the outside, but that's why this interview and my platform is more to understand. Cause I'm genuinely very curious on how someone creates a religion and how that religion continues to just thrive. Because I've had this conversation with my friends before that if let's say a plane crashed and 80 people were stuck in an island then eventually after two years you go to that island there's a religion on that island whether or not they know it yeah no people have to believe in something and they can take it too seriously including the person who created the belief system or the person who's running the organization or the people that are following they get too fundamentalist about it and no humans are not meant to be worshipped like a god and when it does get to their head um, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. At what point do you think that switch happened for him? So I talked to a lot of people who actually knew him personally and worked for him during, you know, the 60s and 70s. And I did like a survey with like as many people as I could find. And everyone, and including my family members, and everyone said the same thing, which is it was like around 1965, 1966, um, around the time he created this new organization to kind of like police Scientology, which we'll talk about later. He, he kind of like, that's when things started kind of going off the rails and it became more focused on how people were doing Scientology wrong and people were bad. Um, and because he was feeling paranoid and he was feeling like it was getting messed up and his results weren't coming through. And then he kind of like started running it to the left a little bit, you know, and that was the beginnings of it was like the mid sixties. Um, it became less of like a healing community kind of like come and go. Like they, they like to describe it as like a hippie religion to like more of like a serious organization. And, you know, and it was in that culture that it um, took the turn that has the reputation today that people don't like. Right. And at what point did his partner? So basically it was in the late 70s, early 80s, that the current leader of the church, David Miscavige, took over the church. To keep it simple, 
Um, by the time the late 70s had come around, the government had indicted the Church of Scientology on charges. And so it kind of blew apart the management organization a little bit. And um, L. Ron Hubbard went into hiding um, to get away from the legal situation and kind of was managing from the side. And when that happened, um, David Miscavige and his group of people came in actually with lawyers to kind of like save the church from this major legal situation because the church was about to get shut down by the U.S. government. And um, he kind of took over power because of that situation. And shortly thereafter, Elrond Hubbard died in 1986. And when he died, he didn't actually make a succession plan. He didn't uh, leave a will for the family. Like I said, he was believing in his own stuff so much that he didn't think he was human anymore. So he just literally kind of left it to chance. And so that in that environment, David Miscavige very easily was able to take the whole church over and assume power over the organization. And what nobody realized at the time, because it hadn't been a dictatorship up to that point, like obviously everyone worshiped Elrond Hubbard like a god, but David Miscavige from that point forward kind of turned it into a dictatorship, which is what it is now. And, you know, so it actually went from like more of a humanitarian thing to almost like internally the politics turned fascist, you know, like it turned a little bit more like his word was even over L. Ron Hubbard sometimes, you know, and no one could really question it because of his absolute power. And that's where it really took the dive that everybody doesn't like it today, where now it's more about making money and less about therapy and, and helping people and in all of the opinions of the people who have left, basically. When we were talking before, you said that your first job was the age of six. What, yes. what, did, what did that job entail? Oh, my job. It was so cute. Um, there were <laughs> there were executives in the organization and I would like bring them coffee and like run notes between people and like make copies for them and like just do minor, minor like administrative functions. Like the place I was at was a manufacturing organization for the materials of Scientology because there's a lot of study materials. So I would help with like physically putting binders together for the study materials and stuff like that. I was like six, seven and eight years old. Like obviously I got more and more involved as I got older and could understand things more, but that's what I was saying. Like the idea is that you're a spiritual being, you inhabit a body and that age is not really like a consideration. Like they don't really take that into account. Like you're an adult, you're here, you're contributing. Let's go. Yeah. And so then as a child, walk me through your day in the compound. Like, like you see, you have like your schooling, you have your chores. I would wake up, I would do schooling for like the first morning. We would do school, you know, for like the normal amount of time. In the school, compound. In the compound. So it was like homeschooling, basically. Did it include uh, the religion schooling or did it also include the basic stuff like math, English, history? My homeschooling included only actual like child subjects like math, reading, history, writing. Um, I actually got a decent education. Um, I was an avid reader since I was a kid. So thank God for that. That really saved me. I read fiction and nonfiction my whole life. I still do. Um, and I actually got uh, like regular normal schooling. And then after school, I would usually go and, you know, help and contribute to whatever thing we were doing for the day. Like sometimes we would help do laundry or sometimes we would help with the messages. Like I said, you know, like running errands for people. Sometimes we were like stuffing um, study packages or whatever in their little manufacturing areas. Um, usually the person that did the homeschooling with me would come with me uh, Less and less as I got older, but, you know, when I was younger, I would have somebody with me. Um, yeah. And then also it's a community. So everyone took care of each other. So it's like a small town. So it was completely safe. So I had the run of the entire compound. But did the schooling change at any time or is continuously like schooling is very important? Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. 
Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Schooling wasn't considered very important. There's a lot of other people that didn't get the level of education I did. I just happened to be an avid reader and kind of like a a perfectionist. Like I kind of was like the type of person that was very ambitious. The schooling that the other children received as well was you know, normal schooling. There was Scientology mixed in with it in that there's Scientology study procedures, like how you're supposed to study things, like, um, which is like, you're supposed to understand all the words in it. You're supposed to like follow certain rules of how to study. So we had that. But beyond that, like the Scientology study time was separate from the schooling. Your experience is also from the main compound experience, not the experience of someone that's from a different tier. That's one yeah, thing that I have to remember, my listeners have to remember. So yeah, that's, this is that's, your experience. This is my experience. And that's why this is very like, this doesn't apply to everybody. Like I have a lot of friends that were all second generation. They did not get a good education. They did not have a good time. The majority of children that you're gonna talk to from Scientology, you know, had a rough go of it. They were almost like orphaned from their parents because their parents were working and they were with, you know, it was just a different, there's a lot of negative child experiences for a lot of my friends. Got it. Uh, what would you say, do you have by any chance like a favorite memory in, in, from the compound that you can elaborate? You don't have to, obviously, but if you do. You know, to be honest, my favorite thing to this day is that um, that compound was my home since I was a child and it was a giant compound and it was beautiful and I had the run of it, you know, and I had a dog when I was young and I, you know, and everyone was really uh, caring for each other. These were the early days before it got turned into more of a dictatorship and everyone was benevolent because, you know, the whole purpose of the, the people joined Scientology to help people. Like that was the whole point. And everyone there was actually like a good person first. So it was like a small town of good people. So that was very heartwarming for me. A lot of the time when anyone joins anything, normally it's for a community. And I was having a conversation with my mother about uh, the interviews I'm having this month. And the one my mom was the most scared about, for whatever reason, was this one. And we were having the conversation. We ta- I explained to her how research shows that when us as humans back in the old days in cavemen the only way humans were able to survive was by being together in a community because if you by yourself you would get killed by a lion or whatever and that's been enacted in us so even even as we've grown older and years of thousands of years have gone by that is still the way only way a lot of times humans are able to survive is in a community it is so true and you know living in the big city um it's isolating and it's not something that I had experienced because I, I literally, regardless of whatever childhood trauma or how crazy things went and and how bad things got or whatever, that community feeling, it's different when you're in the big city. Everyone's kind of isolated. They're in their own little world. You have to like work really hard to have friends. Like no one's really there for you when you need them, that kind of thing. Yeah, no, I mean, I can tell. I can feel your emotions right now. And I can tell that like right now, the way we're having a discussion you are we're clearly highlighting the positive things in your memories because it seems like you have so many positive memories but that's not taking away from the bad memories or one of the reasons you decide to leave but it does make sense because it's when you are suddenly in a city by yourself or just experiencing the world the pandemic so you suddenly sit there and you're kind of like it's kind of like when your ex kind of treated you like shit but now you're lonely and you're kind of like damn was he really that bad like i miss it when he would hold me on during the winter it's so cold outside it's kind of like the same thing my ex is a billion dollar organization (laughs) (laughs) yeah literally but i think i think that's 
what people have to understand since they can't see your face and they're not maybe able to fully connect to you, that's a thing, something that's very important. For anyone that's ever gone through any trauma, a lot of times victims of trauma, or I'm not saying you're a victim, but a lot of times anyone that's gone through something bad, they will still sit there and say positive things. And then people on the outside will be, are you joking? Or does that mean you're not hurting enough? But that's not what it is at all. It's psychological. And a lot of times you will still miss how the good moments with whatever you've grown a part of. And when you leave a religion, a cult, a community, anything, it will forever be ingrained in you. You will never be a full person without it because that's it's 30 years of your life. So people need to understand that when they're listening to this and any anything positive that you're saying. That's a really good point. Because I read books since I was a little girl, I feel like I have, you know, I'm fairly intelligent and fairly intelligent people like to examine both sides of an argument, even if it's something bad that happened to them. And the only way through trauma is actually by forgiveness and by having a balanced view of both sides and to understand why the bad things happened and what the good things were and to not become bitter and, you know, becoming bitter and angry and um, going after something is actually the same coin of being for it. It's the opposite polarity. So you know, the people who are so against it were also the most for it when they were in it. And it's not balanced, right? It's so dualistic. And so they go like, oh my God, they're like a hundred thousand percent into it. And they would like defend it with their lives. And then now they're out and now they're like a hundred thousand percent against it and like would kill it with their lives, you know? And I was never like that as a person, just personally, I've never, I've always been like, huh, let's look at all these different things, you know? And I think it's more healing and more forgiving and it's better like because you know we don't know what happens after death we don't know what happens really you know like in our life like why be better this whole time i love that you're saying that i 100 percent agree with that and that that's a really good point where you're saying on the people anything that they're incredibly for they become against that's so true because they don't realize but it's literally the opposite side of the coin and it's still part of you. it's your personality without realizing yeah literally and they haven't healed it they haven't healed the trauma so it's just it's one extreme to the other it's so easy to hate anything because it doesn't take any effort to hate to gossip it, it's how quote people say brings people together which i don't agree with and i don't like that but it is much harder to try to understand something because then you actually have to have empathy and sympathy and you have to sit and listen and you have to actually give the other person a chance that's really hard for a lot of people because a lot of people are like well i have struggles i don't care about this person's struggles but then i want everyone else to understand my struggles yeah it's so true yeah and people don't know how to listen i listen because it teaches me like if i hear someone else's struggle i want to know all about it because you know what i'm learning about my own you know and you know, and then it helps me help them. And it's like, it's a little circle of life like that most people don't get. No one kill me for saying this right now. I know my sister will. She hates when I bring this up and it's don't, it's not going to ruin the interview. We're going to get back to being serious. But I was going to say, of course, you're such an individual because you're an Aquarius and then you're so deep because your moon is in Scorpio, right? No, my moon is Taurus. Libra rising. That makes sense. Individuality. I feel like it's because you're an Aquarius. And the relation, you know, I relate because I'm Libra. And but I'm grounded because I got the Taurus going. I want to better understand Scientology. So for anyone listening uh, who doesn't feel like doing a quick Google search, can anyone join Scientology? Yes, anyone can join Scientology. It's just a matter of your level of contribution, like how much you're going to pay if you want to just volunteer your time. It's pretty open arms at the beginning levels. So can someone just walk up to a Scientologist church and just be like, hey, I want to join? Yes. What are the basic rules in order to join? I mean, you just have to want to improve yourself. Like you're obviously, you know, have to say yes to the things that they want you to do. That's about it. You'll probably start out with like a basic introductory course. And so, you know, you pay the $50 for that and you do that basic introductory course. And then they're going to want you to come in and do other things. And it's just either your ability to say yes or no to like the different things that they, you know, the steps that you want to take, like the things you want to fix in your life. And then they'll try to sell you um, the therapy, which is what they call auditing. And so what auditing is the word for the therapy system in Scientology, which is you sit with a counselor, basically a big difference between Scientology auditing and like regular therapy is they actually have this thing called an e-meter 
which reads your energy and your thoughts. So it basically reads on your subconscious mind and that's the difference. And so they literally sit there and they ask you like, um, do you have any, like, I'm just going to make up a question, but like, um, how do you feel about your mother? And then it, they'll, they'll see if you have something to talk about with your mother on that meter or not. That's so cool. Yeah. And so basically <laughs> I know, right. That is the thing though, that like, so when used with compassion and love, auditing and the e-meter can really dig up some deep trauma and fix it and you can talk about it and get it off your chest and cry and do whatever you need to do and you go to earlier times in your life that happened and then if you are willing to you can even dip into your past lives with this e-meter and talk about times and bad things that happened with your mother and past lives and you come out of those things feeling really refreshed and really like, oh my God. And then suddenly problems start disappearing in your life. Like, wow, I can actually talk to my mom now. It was me this whole time. That's the good part about it. Um, the bad part is that like, if the organization has it out for you and they want to interrogate you about something, then they can also use that meter to like, Hey, did you actually steal those M&Ms? And the meter will literally tell them. Yeah. I've come across someone, my old accounting job. She tried to recruit me by having me go to meetings. And she explained that she has schooling every week uh, where she goes to this meeting to her school. And she tried to get me and uh, this other girl to go. And then when we weren't sure about it, um, and she told us how her boyfriend is part of it too and he had to stop speaking to his family. And then when we weren't sure about going, then she stopped speaking to us. So that is also some of the Scientology rules of this, of this now, nowadays. Is that correct? Yes, and that's, that's something that I disagreed with while I was growing up in it and a lot of my friends did too. And we pretty much, most Scientologists disagree with it, which is that if somebody wants to have a different belief system or doesn't want to contribute or does it a little bit and then wants to leave or does it a lot and wants to leave, you're required to kind of cut them off. And none of us really understand why that's beneficial. Like none of us like that. Um, I think Elron Hubbard, this is, so this was part of when I was talking about the late sixties and 1965 and all of that kind of thing. Like when things started to lose its shine, this was one of those rules that was implemented because you know, maybe he wasn't uh, feeling that the results were being obtained with Scientology. So he started blaming individual people for being, you know, not as, uh, how do you say, as dedicated to the religion, as um, ethical as they could be. And so it's considered like, if you're not contributing to it, you're against it. And so that black and white polarity thinking, again, plays into it where it's like, oh, if you're not for us, you're against us. So then they're required to kind of cut you out, which includes family members. And it's really toxic. It's so toxic. Um, I have a couple family members that don't talk to me because I just, I left. Like, but I contributed more years than they did to the organization. You know, I was a good person in the organization. And yet here we are, they won't talk to me because I was like, okay, enough. Right. Well, they don't have a choice. To be fair, they don't have a choice either. Um, they would have to leave in order to talk to me, which is a big decision. You know, I all started out like it's a health, you know, self-help therapy and this and that, but like, here comes the cult part. There's also another aspect that people don't talk about that classifies something as a cult, which is labeling. Um, it's, I call it kind of like cognitive dissonance labeling or like, uh, free thinking blockers. So like you label something like, that, like, let's say this person doesn't uh, agree with Scientology, that person gets labeled with, like, the label in Scientology is suppressive person. Suppressive? Su suppressive. So it's like antisocial personality. And now you're like, oh, I don't want to get labeled as suppressive person. So now you change your mind and you toe the line even harder. That's how, how it's culty, because you are, like, scared to think for yourself now, now you're setting it, you know, now you've got cognitive dissonance. Now you're like not thinking like a normal person or like uh, level headed. And you're like, that brings you to a more fundamentalist state. And the more labels they put on people, the more you put yourself into a prison of your own mind. And probably also disowning your family if they're not part of it, the schooling. You also have to sign different paperwork that yes. 
Lots of paperwork. Scientology, so, uh, the organization can come after you for any yes. reason if you do something wrong. Um, probably also the fact that my the girl I was working with, she told me how they, uh, based on her tier, they do different surprise visits. So they're constantly visiting you from the organization. Ooh, and she said that's it's so stressful. But she said it's really cool. They care so much. And they're always checking out. She's lying. She's not lying. She believed it. That that is her reality. From the outside, to me, it felt odd and uncomfortable. To me, to her, that was her reality, and she believed that that made them closer. And that is that is exactly what we're talking about. Like she obviously wasn't thinking uh, she would for herself, and but because she's deeply, and this is the interesting thing about belief at all times is that people set aside logic for their beliefs or they start setting aside things because they really do feel like this thing that they're believing in is helping them and they feel like the help is more than the logic that might be countering what they're doing so they're willing to just like dive in like sure and that makes total sense that would have been me you know, when I was in, I would have been like, sorry, I can't talk to you. Some people believe that Scientology is more like, quote unquote, a Hollywood thing or something for the elites of the world. And um, how I feel like that's that makes it more appealing to a lot of people. Yeah, like it's an exclusive club. Yeah, it's like the solo house of religions. <laughs> that's an amazing analogy. That's hysterical. Um, I would say that it has that image mainly because uh, most of the exposure that general public would have had to it is through celebrity endorsement, like Tom Cruise and so forth. Um, but it is not Hollywood-centric, um, although you do need money to get through it. Right. So the money part, I do want to dive into that. But wait, have you ever met Tom Cruise? I did. I did meet him a couple times. Yeah. That's very sorry. It's not cool. Obviously, no, I, I don't know. It is cool. It is cool. It's fine. It wasn't. But the thing is, I'm kind of like, I'm already like, I don't really care. I'm not someone who gets um, butterflies with celebrities anyways. Like I've always. No, but he's such a big part of it. He's the reason I know about it. Yes. And that's why people think it's Hollywood centric. That's my point. Exactly. And um, he is exactly how he seems. He is He's super intense, you know, very like nice, but intense, you know, like he's obviously not somebody you would want to cross. Um, but, you know, he and also in Hollywood, he has a decent reputation. Like he takes care of the crew. He's, you know, he's very involved in his movies he's very hardworking, um but you know he's absolutely fanatical about scientology and he's also best friends with david miscavige the leader of the church so he's pretty high up in the ranks inside scientology yeah i would say that he he's not in a management position but he is in you know he's right next to the guy that runs the thing and has the dictatorship so <laughs> Moving on. We're going to go watch Top Gun. <laughs> <laughs> I do think he's a great actor. I actually, I'm very fond of him, to be honest. Yeah, he's really hardworking. Like, he's really hardworking. He takes care of the crew. And, you know, whatever happens that's negative happens within his own walls. Okay, so talking about the money aspect, what does it mean that the more money you have, the more deeper you can be in Scientology? The therapy, the auditing, it costs money. You know, it, it's sold by like 12 hours at a time, you know, or half of that at a time. And it does cost a lot of money. Um, it actually costs a little more than like normal therapy. It's like a really expensive therapy. Like how much? I actually don't know what the current pricing is. I'll be totally honest. I would have to actually ask somebody. 15 years ago when you were still there, what do you think you would go for? CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery Starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. 
Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Oh, it was like $15,000 for 12 hours, depending on like what you did, or like $12,000 for 12 hours. Yeah, it was it was bananas. Um, but that's... I. You know, I've obviously been out for like over 11 years, so my memory might not be serving me. So I know that independently outside of the organization, um, the auditing that is offered by independent members is far more reasonable, like regular, like $100 an hour kind of therapy prices, you know. Um, So it depends where you go to get that auditing as to how expensive it is. So there's this place in Florida, which is like the top place where they deliver auditing, that's gonna be expensive. But if you go to just like a regular organization, like um, they call them missions, like there's the Valley Mission or something like that. Um, uh, Patrick Renna, for example, he has like a mission. His prices are gonna be a little more reasonable for auditing because it's not this like top tier you know, where you get the best possible experience. And auditing is necessary when you first enter. That's like a must. Yeah, they usually start you off with study, but eventually the idea is to do auditing. And um, I know you're going to ask me about this, but it's, you know, this thing they call the bridge. Basically, the goal of Scientology is to break the life-death cycle, kind of like Buddhism, so that you don't have to reincarnate, basically. Like, you can be, you can decide if you want to reincarnate or not. So Scientologists, they don't believe in re- reincarnation or they do? They do believe in reincarnation, but they want to break, they want to be causative about their own reincarnation. Like they want to be like, yeah, I'll reincarnate or not. Like they have that much control over it. Got it. Okay. Interesting. So it's like, you're like, I don't want to come back as, um, what's her name? Trisha Paytas's baby. So I'm going to like pray extra today. Yes. I'm going to work extra hard on my auditing and my studies so that I can be, you know, fully in charge of my, you know, they don't call it soul, but, you know, be fully in charge of, like, what your soul's destiny is. So the top of the bridge is that you've achieved that goal, that you break the life-death cycle. So I guess one thing I didn't ask, when you were growing up, the compounds, those different compounds, which state was that in? Scientology started kind of all over the United States with L. Ron Hubbard, but... It, he started putting down roots in like Phoenix, Arizona and Washington, D.C. And um, then he was in England. And then in the 60s, he was on a boat. And then the boat landed in Florida in the late 70s, which is why that's the big, huge, you know, like that's where the top levels are delivered. And then he moved to California. He's, you know, and through these years, you know, organizations are sprouting up in California and all over Europe and all of these places. And then, you know, in California, the compound I'm talking about, yes, that's in California. It's a big secretive management place that, like, makes sure all of uh, Scientology was doing what it should be doing, basically. So speaking of tiers and levels is what most people know. Uh, when you first joined Scientology, you are the lowest level. How are you, how many levels are there in Scientology, and how are you able to get to one of the highest levels? So this bridge has like at least forty levels on it. I've actually never like counted the levels. Um, let's see. I would say like twenty auditing levels and like twenty study levels. You know, and um. And so when you first join, you know, you just move up those levels and you go to different tiers of organizations as you move up the levels, basically. And you pay more and more money as you go into the higher levels. And every level you have to do auditing. Pretty much. Yeah. There's a little study and auditing involved in all the levels, yeah. And there are different fees each time you move up a level. Yes. The fees, like in 2013, to move from level one to two was twenty seven fifty, but that was in 2013. So why does it cost so much? To be totally honest, I was never involved directly in the financial decisions of the levels, and I was never in an organization that delivered 
the actual therapy, you know, that delivered the auditing. So I don't know. Sometimes they actually sell the level and sometimes they sell just the hours as you're auditing on the level. So it depends. And I don't know how they're doing it now. Like right now, I don't know how it's done. Well, it makes sense. I think a it's in order to bring money to the organization it's kind of like when there's the the pastors in the churches and then you see them driving a really expensive car afterwards it's from the donations so um i can see yeah i can see how that's similar but it does make sense why people consider it elite uh the religion of of elites because even if you're a big believer of scientology you literally cannot move up in the levels unless you have the money to give it to um Scientologists. That's 100% true. That's 100% true. And the belief is also, though, that the higher you get up on the levels, the more money, the more able you are and the better you get. And so you'll probably be able to make more money because you're doing better. You know, so if it's working, you're becoming more and more successful financially as well. And then it's like almost like an investment in yourself. So like, you score that big deal because you had this auditing and now you have a hundred thousand dollars and you're like, damn. So you're like, you now put 50 K back in. Cause you're like, now I'm going to make 250,000. Cause like this worked, you know, that's kind of the theory. So for anyone to even be on level, I thought there were five levels. I don't know why I there were five levels. So for anyone to be on, let's say level 40, that means at this point they've, they've given millions of dollars to the organization, but they're also probably way at the top. And they're at this point have met all the top people. They get visits. The more, the more higher up you are, the more probably, you know, the more secret things and the more they visit your home and protect you, quote unquote. So that's kind of a simplified version of it. I feel like it's, it's hard. It's so much information. You're doing really good with all of this. It's so much. You know, the more money you're giving and the higher up you are on the bridge, um, you know, 40 might be an exaggeration. I don't have the bridge in front of me, but it's a lot of, a lot of steps to get up there. And um, you have given hundreds of thousands by the time you get to the top of it. But a lot of the people that get to the top of the bridge, they're not necessarily involved in the upper management. They're not they don't have access to David Miscavige. Just because you're at the top of the bridge doesn't mean you have access to Tom Cruise. What's the point then? Yeah, what is the point? I know that's what I was always wondering. And actually, some people do donate a lot of money to get the status to be able to talk to David Mis like because so he'll comment he'll give you like a, a validation or commendation for giving that much money and you might get a chance to meet him and so some people actually donate a lot of money so that they can actually meet the leader of the church so that's donation though that's like literally donation that's not even paying for auditing when you're talking about paying for auditing you know, that doesn't necessarily give you access to top management or Tom Cruise. Right. But I would say one thing that does make sense with all the therapy, it seems that not only are you getting rid of toxic things out of your life, meaning anything or anyone in your life doesn't agree with Scientology, that's A, you join a community, that's B, so you have, you have people now care about you. And then they also are helping you with your mental health in a way that now you're like maybe no more drinking okay i should eat healthier and all that so in a way it almost does make sense that you kind of start to live a better life maybe attracting more money so it makes sense that then you want to give back some of the money it seems that let's say in hollywood if two of you are scientologists and i'm a scientologist i want to be on a movie I can probably, if there's someone else who's a Scientologist in that movie production, they will probably hire me, right? 100%. That's a huge deal in the community. Like if you're in good standing with Scientology and you have individual Scientologists, you kind of look out for each other and you like network together. And that's also, you know, so it's kind of like, you know, it's the same thing in the tight knit Jewish communities, you know, like everybody, yeah, you know, like everybody gives each other a leg up. You see it with like the Koreans will... Sometimes like in LA, you know, you'll see the Koreans, they'll just do business with the Koreans, like because you're the same community or race or whatever, each other gives each other. It's the same thing. Well, I think it's in general, a lot of people, when they feel misunderstood, I go to Mexico, which has happened in the past, and I run into someone Jewish right away. We're familiar with each other and we're like, oh my God, come to Shabbat. It just feels like familiar with one another and it does feel like a family. So in that regard, I can understand when it comes with Scientology, it's like the same thing. Because it's misunderstood a lot of the time and not not similar, but you know what I mean. No, no, no. It's, 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 it's human nature to do that. Walk me through 
your days towards the end of deciding to leave Scientology? Oof. Okay. So, um, I actually decided to leave several years before I actually left and I had to figure out a, um, skill that I could actually get paid for outside of the church, you know, because I'd grown up there since I was a kid. And I also, the, the church was taking kind of a dive at the time. What does a dive mean? So the place where I was at kind of turned a little bit into, like, we weren't allowed to come and go sort of towards like the late nineties, early two thousands. Um, it became a little more shut down. Um, we were in trouble because Scientology wasn't expanding. Um, so the place where I was at became not as pleasant to be at and it became less and less pleasant as days went on. And so I had made a decision that I was going to leave. I just, but then I also wanted to watch the train wreck. Like part of me wanted to watch this train go off the rails and savor the story. And, um, so I kind of hung around for a while. I got some, you know, regular world skills together so that I could get hired after I left and I would be able to just say no to any friends or family that tried to entice me back because I was making my own money. So leading up to leaving, I basically, um, I actually asked uh, a few of my friends were like not wanting to stay there. And I knew that. And so I asked if anybody wanted to come with me, you know, and basically nobody really did um, because they were too scared. And I basically had a truck and I packed my truck and over like a three week period, I just put stuff in my truck that I wanted to take with me. And then one day, um, and I made sure that the whole year before I left that I was on good terms. Like I didn't do anything crazy. I was not in trouble so that, you know, the security that guards our gates would trust me. And I said that I was going to go across the street and I basically took a left turn and I left. And, um, with my stuff packed in my truck and I just left and I was like, I knew that I never wanted to return to it again because it had become so toxic for me as a person personally. And so I didn't know what my future held, but I knew I could get a job and I just wanted to get out of there. Were you able to say goodbye to your family members or your friends that you knew were planning on staying there forever? So there was a couple people I was able to say goodbye to. Um, that have actually since left. Um, but, uh, you know, because I knew that they were wanting to leave as well. But most of the time, I couldn't really tell anyone because they would have stopped me. Told on you or just stopped you? Told on me and I would have been stopped at the gate. So is that the only way you're able to leave Scientology if you are in a first tier? Some people, they just pay money and they come and go from the organization. Some people are like heavily involved and but they're still just paying money to go to the Florida place, like I said, and so forth. Um, the level that I was in was what they call the C organization. And it it's basically like you sign over your life to the church and kind of like, like a little bit like a lifetime sentence in the military, like you're signing up for it. You were in the C, C level. Yeah, the C organization. And when you're in the C organization, depending on which there's several different C organization compounds and depending on which compound you're at, it's harder or easier to leave the organization. And I was at one of the hardest places to leave. Yes. Cause you said with you, you were on good terms with the guard and then when you were exit, so he was trusting you enough to let you leave the compound, especially during the time where you said everything was kind of going mad. And then as you left, you said you just made a left turn instead of, I guess, the right turn. Was your heart pounding? Literally, my heart was pounding. I knew there was no turning back. Like, this was a permanent decision I was making. But I did know that I didn't want to be there anymore. So I didn't really care what my future held. I just had to go. When you left, were you constantly looking over your shoulder for a while before you felt comfortable? Or you just knew they're not going to look for you? I mean, I look over my shoulder all the time, really just in general, just as a person, just because, you know, the trauma I've had. Um, but I will say that I wasn't concerned about them coming and looking for me because I knew I was never going back. And so there was no stress. 
So any amount of them trying to convince me to go back or whatever, I was dead certain that I was never going back. And I had been followed like when I first left, but then I would always spot them following me. And then I would like walk towards the car that was following me and be like, what's up? And kind of freak out the person following me. And so they kind of stopped following me because I kind of am not scared. But that's rare. Yeah. But it does make sense. That is one of the reasons they have people sign all these forms is just kind of, you know, you knew a lot of things. We just want to make sure we can trust you. That makes sense. How long did it take them to find you to check in on you? Oof, three days because I bought a phone. They traced, they found... Because they have my social, they have my banking records, you know, because all the mail went to the compound. So they could tell that I, I bought the phone on a card. And then they were able to call AT&T, get the information, and then trace me on my phone. When they came to check on you, was it familiar faces or was it just part of... Yeah. Oh, that's nice, in a way. It was my ex-friends coming to be like oh no, you're leaving, like you should come back, like we're so sorry for everything that was done and like trying to make good on it and trying to get me to come back. So if after three days when they found you and you were like, yeah, you're right, this was a mistake, you would have been able to just walk back in even though you you broke their trust and left? Yeah, they would have, well, because of the level I was at and my family's involved, they would have done anything to get me back. Um, they wanted to do auditing on me to find out why I left and to confess any crimes I had committed, which is why I'm leaving. You know, that's the belief system that you've done something bad, which is why you would want to leave something so amazing. What's considered a crime? Oh, well, I mean, small things are crimes because it's such an it teaches such high honesty, high morality. But, you know, they were thinking like maybe I had stolen something or slept with somebody I shouldn't have or something crazy, you know. But I hadn't, of course. I just was, it was too much. I actually, they kept coming after me. And I actually, um, one of my families had a lawyer. And I had the lawyer write a cease and desist letter. And was like, I don't, I'm not going to go after you guys. I'm not going to speak out against you. I just want my peace. And that kind of freaked them out. Well, they probably wanted to know what you were up to. Because you know so many secrets. I understand, I kind of, in a way... I'm trying to understand where they're coming from. No, I totally understand. Like, I would have been freaked out because I did it so suddenly. It's like leaving the CIA. Literally. And you're like, and you did it. I did it overnight in their mind. You know, even though I was preparing for it for like over a year, they, I just like all of a sudden I was just gone. It kind of freaked them out. Do you think some of your family members kind of, even though you, maybe you didn't tell them or some of the people in your life that you didn't tell, you think they kind of knew towards the end? Cause maybe you were like mentally checked out. Yeah. I think, I think the people close to me knew that I was going to do that because leading up to that time, I was talking about like how unhappy I was there. And, um, and I think they understood it, but like, you know, the organization itself that would the people in the organization that would actually get in trouble for people leaving, you know, they, they, they're, they're put under a lot of pressure to get you back. Yeah. So were you afraid for those people's? I felt bad. Yeah. Like, did they get in trouble? Because people, I'm sure they got interviewed if they knew or not that you were going to leave. I felt bad for what might've happened to my friends and, and people who were close to me and also the people that in the organization were in charge of making sure I didn't leave. I feel bad for them. Like those were my friends, but there was no other, I had been asking to leave for so many years prior and they weren't letting me leave. So I had to do it that way. Do you ever see yourself going back? No, I mean like, obviously like I'm an avid studier of therapy and uh, the human mind and religious beliefs and all sorts of things, but I could never, ever, ever go back to any organized religion ever again. Right. So that is actually what I was going to ask you. What are your current views on religion? Are you, do you, do you follow something now or are you just, uh, what do they call it? Agnostic, I think. Agnostic. No, I'm definitely not agnostic. Um, when I first left, I threw everything out into the trash. And then over the last 10 years, I've kind of rebuilt a belief system. I guess you would categorize me as omnist which is like i take from all different religions and studies and i take truths that uh resonate with me and i would say that i was spiritual still um you know i do believe that there's something more than just this life and just this body and you know i love astrology obviously i love you know studying all sorts of different modalities and healing and 
uh, I combine whatever I learned from Scientology and kind of compare it constantly and like learn new things. And it's been a real joy for me to be able to study other materials and other things and to be able to help other people because of such, I think my biggest joy is that I had such an incredible amount of information given to me through all of the trauma that I have gone through that I'm able to literally help any person that wants to talk to me about it in some way. I think that's a huge gift. And um, so I'm trying to figure out how to do that. You know, you know, obviously I have a day job, but you know, I would love to impart as I get older and I'm gathering more and more information would like to impart that to people around me to help them. That's one reason, like I said, I wanted to come on your platform because you offer that. You offer like options. Yeah, you're welcome. You offer like options of like, hey, look at this and let's talk about this and let's not be so black and white about this, you know, that kind of thing. Well, I do think it's important. And yeah, I think I think it would be cool if you even created something for other people who have made the decision to leave Scientology, but some of the beliefs they still carry on and then it can be a community for them to be able to still carry their views.